When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The FT Welcome to World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. This week, the aftermath of the revolution in Tunisia, arguments in Euroland and the Chinese president's high-profile state visit to Washington. We start with Tunisia. It's almost a week now since President Ben Ali fled the country and a new political order is struggling to emerge. I'm joined by the FT's Middle East editor, Ruda Halaf. Uh, Ruda, where do things stand now a week on? I think what Tunisians have been trying to do this week is they believe that, okay, their dictator is gone, but the actual regime is still in place. And the attempts by the ruling party to put together some kind of coalition government that would work during a transition period and prepare for elections has not been accepted by a lot of people. There have been demonstrations in most of the major cities in Tunisia. Uh, much more peaceful because the police is not no longer shooting at demonstrators. Um, and w- what people really want is a dismantlement of the ruling RCD party. Now, that's not easy to do. I mean, the dilemma in Tunisia today is how do you make sure that you have a smooth transition towards a more democratic system? You know, the only thing that you have, which is the ruling party, because today is about how much of the old system do you keep? And... Has clear leadership emerged from the ruling party? I mean, do we have a sense of their strategy? Are they offering free elections? And if so, how free? Well, the people who've been leading the transition are uh, the prime minister, the speaker of parliament, who are who have been important figures in the party. But of course, Ben Ali had dominated the party very much. So there was, you know, no one else had much of a say. So there aren't figures who are very uh, prominent, who who are charismatic enough to carry others with them. Um, some of the charismatic figures seem to now be emerging from the opposition, particularly one opposition leader called uh, Najib Shebbi. Uh, he's joined the government, and I think that is this, that has been a source of legitimacy and credibility for this government. But I think what's going to happen within the RCD is a lot of people have started to leave. Today, all the ministers who are now in the in the government and who were members uh, announced that uh, they were resigning from the party. The prime minister, the speaker of parliament resigned yesterday. Uh, so I think this party has to rebrand. It's going to, it will, it might very well remain, but it will be a shadow of its former self. And what role is the army playing? I think the army played a very crucial role um, in the departure of of Ben Ali. Uh, Last Friday, a a lot of people have described this as a mini-coup, where the army essentially refused to shoot at demonstrators, which is what Ben Ali wanted. And um, faced with that, eventually he left. Faced with that and the fact that the other people in the ruling party were no longer supporting him. Um, but you have to remember that in Tunisia, the army is small. We're talking about 38,000 uh, compared to a much larger police force. So, yes, the army's played a role, 
But I don't think that the army wants to take over. The army traditionally in Tunisia has always played um, a back, has always preferred to remain in the background. Now, I'm going to end by asking you probably an impossible question. But if you had to look ahead three, six months time, do you think we will be looking at the emergence of a of a stable and democratic system in Tunisia? Or is that too hopeful? I think it's a bit early to say, but I th- I do see signs that the political class in Tunisia is responsible, more responsible than a lot of people would have thought. Um, there's another hopeful sign, which is that we had a few days of chaos right after the overthrow of, of Ben Ali. And the security forces and the army, they've, they seem to be able, to have been able to control the situation. So while on Monday um, I felt that things were getting out of control, um, I think the situation is being contained now. Ruler, thank you very much indeed. This week's also seen a very high-profile visit by Hu Jintao, the Chinese president, to Washington. A few months ago, China was proclaimed as the world's second-largest economy, second only to the US, that is, and Chinese confidence is high. Meanwhile, America in recent months has been open in its complaint about China's military build-up and economic policy. And greeting his Chinese opposite number, President Obama made his views on the currency issue clear. I told President Hu that we welcome China's uh, increasing the flexibility of its currency, but I also had to say that the RMB remains undervalued, that there needs to be further adjustment in the exchange rate, and that this can be a powerful tool for China boosting domestic demand and lessening the inflationary pressures in their economy. So we'll continue to look for the value of China's currency to be increasingly driven by the market, which will help ensure that no nation has an undue economic advantage. I'm joined now by the FT's Tom Mitchell, a long-time resident of China who's recently moved to London. Uh, Tom, what are the main things that have struck you so far about this visit? I think the most important thing is substantively very little happened. In other words, the summit was a crowning success. These summits are primarily they're about body language, they're about mood music, they're about keeping the relationship on an even keel. I think it helps to sometimes think about China and the U.S. as a divorced couple with children. As much as they might not really like or trust each other, they have common interests, which are of paramount importance. And these meetings are really important just to kind of keep everything on track. Between meetings, the relationship might get a bit better or, as we've seen over over the re- over recent months and years, actually going in a, in a much uh, a much more difficult trajectory. It's, it's just an opportunity to sort of bring things back to the center as you were and sort of start over. So basically, the, these arguments that have been bubbling away didn't get out of hand and they managed to calm it down. But let's, let's look in a bit more detail at, at the two main areas, I guess, you could, the economic and the strategic. Um, on the economy, it now looks as if the protectionist moves in, in Congress uh, seem to be in abeyance. Is that right? Although, on the other hand, I see that three major congressional leaders refused even to come to the dinner. Um, they, they do remain in abeyance, but they always kind of have been. Um, the Republican-controlled House is a lot less interested in um, beating the war drum vis-a-vis China compared to uh their Democratic colleagues. Um, But even when the Democrats were in control of the House, 
there's no way the president, uh, Republican president or Democrat president, was ever going to let the sort of initiatives that get talked about, such as a, a unilateral duty on Chinese imports, as Charles Schumer, the senator from New York, likes to bring up all the time. That that's that was never that's never really a credible threat. And uh, on the strategic front, shortly before President Hu Jintao uh, turned up. Robert Gates, the U.S. Defense Secretary, had been in Beijing and had expressed his surprise and a degree of alarm at this test of a new stealth aircraft. Uh, where do things stand there? I mean, did, did President Obama raise again America's concerns about the military, or did, did, did he leave that aspect of things to one side? Uh, I'm, I'm sure he did. It's obviously a very sensitive area, but it's one area that U.S. officials are incredibly concerned about. As as they tick off the various aspects of the relationship, the one which stands out as being by far in the worst shape is the military-to-military relationship. That's been true for for a lot of years. There's a lot of reasons for it. Uh, conservatism of the, of the People's Liberation Army, um, just the rise of patriotic sentiment in China itself. Um, but it's also the one area that's really hard uh, to fix, um, and it, it is a really, really crucial area. Unfortunately, you don't really see any any prospect of military-to-military relations getting getting better. The fact that Gates made it to Beijing after being rebuffed for a number of years was at least a step in the right direction. Tom Mitchell, thank you very much indeed. Finally to Europe. A week ago, the Europeans were breathing a sigh of relief as a Portuguese bond auction went unexpectedly well, and hopes rose that Europe might finally be emerging from the crisis over its single currency. But now the moods darken slightly, as the European Commission in Brussels and the German government squabble openly about the next steps to be taken in stabilising the single currency. Quentin Peel is the FT's Berlin correspondent, and he's with me in the studio now. Quentin, what's the argument all about? Well, I think we're actually in a little bit of a danger of exaggerating it in the markets too. We're into quite an extended process now of trying to sort out a package to underpin the euro yet again, which they'll only agree at the end of March. The Commission isn't actually a major player here, but it wants to be. This is a deal between the member states, of which, of course, Germany is the most important economically. And so when the Commission started jumping up and down and saying, we want a deal by the first week of February, I think they did get really rather irritated in Berlin and said, basically, none of your business. We're doing this in our own time. But is there uh, an issue of substance as well as timing? The Commission appears to want to give this European Stability Fund a bit more leeway to buy European bonds and so on, and the Germans seem a bit reluctant. Yes, the Germans have made it pretty clear that they are prepared to increase their financial guarantees so that the whole fund, as it stands, can be used. At the moment, it can't lend all the 440 billion euros to different member states that is on paper because it has to keep a whole bundle back in order to have a reserve and therefore get a AAA status for its bonds. So that means that somebody's going to have to increase their guarantees. But actually what they're really talking about now, and I think the message from Berlin is 
this. It's not money that is the important thing. It's what we do with this stabilisation fund. What we're actually debating on is new instruments, ways of actually making better use of the money and making more use of the money. So, for example, giving lower interest rates to some of a borrowing country, maybe allowing a borrowing country to get short-term liquidity credit rather than just the full, big, heavy IMF-backed programmes. So all of that's under debate, and it's not something you can sort out in a week. Taking a step back, what's the, what's the mood in Berlin now? Do they feel that, uh, that the worst is over and that essentially we're through the really frightening bit of the crisis and there is time now to consider the long-term lessons and how, how to stabilise the euro? Or are they still very concerned that we could be back on the roller coaster quite soon? I think they feel there's light at the end of the tunnel, but that tunnel's still quite long. I mean, I think that we're going to have a pretty bumpy ride in the Eurozone, maybe till the middle of the year. If they get this package together by March, maybe it'll stop things. But I think that the markets are looking for more credibility, and it takes time to prove that there is credibility. It also may... I mean... Everybody feels that Portugal, in the end, may have to turn to this stabilisation fund. Whether there's another move further down the line, will Greece have to restructure? Another big question. I think in Berlin, all these things are on the table. These are all possibles. The problem for the Germans is they've still got a hell of a job persuading their domestic constituency that they will be the major guarantor of a lot of other countries whom they regard as sinners. They use the word sinners to describe people like Greece, like Italy, like Portugal. And uh, it's, it's a very unpopular move in Germany. So it's a big political as well as an economic problem. Yeah, they're balancing the politics with seven state elections in Germany this year against Europe, where they believe we will do what it takes to save the euro. They keep saying it, and I think we should believe them. Quentin Peel, thank you very much indeed. And that's it for this week's World Weekly. Don't forget to keep up with the series China Shapes the World, which is online at www.ft.com, China World. Thanks to Rula Khalaf, Tom Mitchell and Quentin Peel for joining me in this studio. And thank you for listening. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.